0: really narrow these down. uh, A couple things I'm thankful for. Uh, Number one is that last week I was at, in Chicago, with with Sam Huggard and uh, pastors from all over the country. Uh, We were there for the Evangelical Free Church of America's national conference. This is our our denomination. I don't know if you know we're a part of a denomination. We are. We're a part of the EFCA. And together with all the pastors around the country, we, we gathered together in Chicago. And I'll share more about that in, in the next couple weeks. I want to give you kind of a picture of what God is doing, uh, but suffice it to say for today, God is working through his people in the EFCA across the country and across the world. I left so encouraged by what God is doing in the EFCA. If you want to know more about that, you can. I'm sure Sam has more he could share with you about that. Totally putting him on the spot here, but uh, yeah, he's our district representative actually in New England, so um, it was a, it was just an honor to see the movement of God that we get to be a part of, so I'm really thankful for that. That's one thing I'm thankful for. The second thing I'm thankful for is that the week before Chicago, I was in Colorado with my family uh, on Olivia's side, 23 people in one house, yep. And then we took a 15-hour road trip with a one-year-old. So we had, we had. Uh, it, I'm rested and I am exhausted, and it's good to be home. Um, and the third thing I'm thankful for is that when I was gone. Rob Oblinus came and he brought the word of God to you. Um, what I'm, real, I'm, I'm so thankful. I can leave and be sure that Rob, the other elders, the other leaders in this church will continue the work of God that he is doing here in our church. It doesn't rest on one person in our church. It rests on everyone. We all share the responsibility to minister to one another. And last week, Rob proved that. So thank you so much, brother. I love that. Um, yeah. Alright, and last week Rob was in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Today we're picking up uh, where Rob left off. Uh, Both in the passage, uh, verse 45, but also in the story. Because we can't understand what we're about to read without remembering that this is flowing directly out of what Jesus did last week. Last week, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. And while Jesus has been doing miracles throughout his ministry, uh, the raising of someone from death to life uh, is is kind of a whole other level it's a different degree and what we see is that the Jewish leaders respond to it as if it's a full other level the other miracles created ripples in the Jewish community the raising of Lazarus created a tidal wave and what flows out of this miracle now in this passage is we get to see the Jewish leaders meet together We get to be a fly on the wall and watch them wrestle with this question. What do we do with what Jesus is doing in Jerusalem? How do we respond to this Jesus of Nazareth? So let me read this passage for us. John chapter 11 verses 45 through 54. And then I'll stop to pray for our time. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, he's talking about raising Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly amongst the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. This is the word of God. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, can, I confess that when uh, I read this passage this week, I'm getting ready, For uh, today, I thought to myself, how am I going to pull a sermon out of that? (laughs) Uh, But Father, what your word does so often, it did in this passage as well, Lord. There is so much beauty there. That the more we look at it, the more riches pop up uh, and reveal themselves to us. And so, Father, at this point, I am excited to share the truth that you've shown me through this word. So, Father, we pray that today, above all else, you would give us soft hearts. Soft hearts for those who have been walking with Christ for a long time so that we would hear your word and truly desire and long and expect to be changed by it. If it's your word, it'll change us. So Lord, change us and give us soft hearts so that you can do your work. And Father, for those of us who don't know you or maybe be asking questions like, uh, I don't know uh, where I'm at with Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if he truly is the Savior, Father. I pray that if there's anybody here today uh, who's, who's wrestling with questions like that, that today would be a monumental day, a turning point in their life where the word of God does a powerful work in their life as well. Give them soft hearts as well. And Father, I pray for myself, give me a soft heart as I try to present your word. May I speak what is true and may it change all of us, me included. So Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this time to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 45. We're going to start with the first four verses. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, that's raising Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. All right. So Jesus heals Lazarus. Actually, more than that, he brings Lazarus back from the dead. And as Rob did so well last week, uh, he pointed out the fact that raising somebody from the dead is raising somebody from the dead. It's not opening their eyes. It's not multiplying loaves. It's death to life. It's doing what nobody can do. It's doing what only God to do can do, and that's important. So Jesus raises somebody from death to life, and as usual, uh, there's different reactions. We see in verse 45, many who had seen what he did believed in him. They saw Lazarus raised, and they recognized that this miracle was pointing towards a reality. The reality is that this man is not just some miracle worker. he is the Messiah, the guy that we've been waiting for for centuries and centuries and centuries. After all, that stacked on top of his, all of his signs and all of his teachings and his life and his ministry should prove, and did prove, without a shadow of the doubt, that Jesus actually is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. If other signs were hints, this is a sounding gong. This is a foghorn. This is a crashing symbol. Jesus is the Messiah. But also like we have to recognize while the other signs sent ripples through the Jewish community, this sign, the raising of Lazarus, sent a tidal wave through the community. And we see this in how the other group of people responded in verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And make no mistake, they are not going to the Pharisees excitedly proclaiming, Good news, Lazarus is okay. That wasn't the message that they went to proclaim. No, they went to proclaim that Jesus had done another miracle... ...indicating, and that's a problem. But why is that a problem? Well, let's let's read on and and see what they say. They went to rat out Jesus. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council to talk about this. Literally, they called together the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Israel at this time. This was the highest judicial body of Jewish leaders. And when they got together, this is the question they were asking. What are we to do? What are we to do about this man? For, for this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, do you think they were being paranoid? When you think about that that fear, the fear of the Romans coming in and wiping them out, is this a paranoid fear or is this a legitimate fear? I mean, stop and think about this for just a minute. When people believed in Jesus, uh, what were they believing? They were believing that he was the Messiah. And what's a Messiah? A Messiah is from the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's the word that means anointed king. To believe that Jesus is the Mashiach, the anointed king is to say that he is going to come and set up a kingdom. For them to believe that Jesus is a Messiah is to believe that that he's going to come and set Israel free. So in the eyes of the Romans, a Messiah was a revolutionary. In the eyes of the Romans, a Messiah was a political threat, a usurper of the throne. He was a coup leader. He was a guerrilla military organizer. He was a threat to the stability of the empire. And so if the numbers of believers continued to multiply, how do you think Rome would respond? How do you think Rome would handle a growing group of revolutionaries? Well, we see what they think in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place, that's most likely referring to the temple, and our nation. These fears were absolutely legitimate. Because if all Israel started following a rival king, the nation of Israel would be a nation of rebels. This would be a nation of of traitors. And if everyone followed him, this might spell not just the end of the Jewish temple, but the end of the Jewish people. Their fear was legitimate. So the question remains, what are we going to do? How will we respond to this man that is raising what looks like an insurrection? Well, let's see the answer. Verse 49 through 52. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So the question is posed, what are we to do? And as the Sanhedrin is wrestling with this dilemma, trying to figure out what their next step will be, this man, Caiaphas, the high priest, the man with the most power in the room, stands up and asserts his authority. And this is what he says. You know nothing at all. He says, "You idiots. You don't get this. You don't you don't get you don't you don't get it, do you?" That's that's what he's saying. He's saying, "Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not for the whole nation." should perish. Basically, what Caiaphas stands up and does is he asserts his power to suggest a solution, a solution to the dilemma, and the solution that Caiaphas proposes is a substitution. It's a substitution. The life of Jesus for the life of the nation. The life of Jesus in place of the life of of the nation, the existence of the nation. Either we do nothing about Jesus and the whole nation receive the wrath of the Romans or we kill Jesus and we save the nation, the people, the temple. And it's funny because by insulting their intelligence, by basically saying, uh, uh, guys, you know nothing, what he's implying is that this is a pretty obvious solution. He's saying, guys, you didn't think about yourself? This is an obvious and easiest answer. It's just rational. We trade his life for the life of the Jewish people. We kill him, and we give life to the Jews. Save the nation, and kill one man. He continues, or uh, the narrator tells us what happens in the next two verses, verses 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, when we read the Bible, um, we read it through our own personal lenses, right? Um, I know me, I'm a a 30 year old white male who lives in Alton, New Hampshire. I'm I'm a Christian, that's who I am. And so I read them through my own lenses and try as we might to read the scriptures Uh, without any lenses, to get what it's truly saying, uh, it's a really hard thing to take off our lenses, uh, even for a moment. But I think that's something that we have to do in this passage. Because I want to read this passage right away with Christian lenses on. I want to read this passage right away to understand Caiaphas to be talking about Jesus' substitutionary atonement on the cross, meaning his death on the cross for our sins in our place. But that's not what Caiaphas is talking about here. We have to read this passage with Jewish lenses on. We have to understand this passage in the way Caiaphas meant for it to be understood because Caiaphas knew what Caiaphas meant. So what did he mean? What is he trying to say here? What is he trying to communicate? Well, very simply, what he meant was that Jesus would be a substitute, dying so that the Jewish people wouldn't. He meant, that Jewish, uh, sorry, that he meant that Jesus would bear the wrath of Rome in the place of the Jews. Finally, he believed and prophesied that Jesus' death would somehow bring about a gathering, a unifying of all the Jews who lived outside of the promised land. These Jews that lived outside of the promised land, they were called the dispersion. And he was prophesying that somehow Jesus' death would draw all of them back together in a unified country, as a unified people. But taking our Jewish lenses off and putting our Christian lenses back on, we know that Caiaphas spoke even better than he knew. The words that he spoke were even more true than he would have ever, ever, ever imagined. And when John records these words, he means for us to see the irony in what Caiaphas is saying. He means for us to understand the Holy Spirit who inspired these scriptures to have a fuller meaning in this passage. Because just like Caiaphas said, Jesus would be a substitute, but not in a physical and legal sense, rather in a sacrificial sense. Jesus was the Lamb of God just as John the Baptist prophesied in John chapter 1, he would bear man's guilt on his shoulders and he would die his death bearing man's punishment for those sins. He is the substitute. He died so that we wouldn't have to. Just like Caiaphas said, Jesus would bear the wrath of another but he would not bear the wrath of Rome in place of the Jews. He would bear the wrath of God in the place of the world. Finally, just like Caiaphas said, Jesus' death would bring about a gathering, but not a gathering of Jews from other lands into Jerusalem. Rather, it would be a gathering of all God's people into one unified, single, universal church. Caiaphas spoke better than he knew because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. The sins of all humanity were laid on him. He bore the punishment for those sins by his wounds We are healed. By his death, we have life. By this faith, we are set free from sin and death. And we are united into one universal church. Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. But as this passage comes to a close, we see that the Jews accept Caiaphas' solution. And they move forward with their plan. Verses 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. For the Jews to believe that Jesus was truly the Messiah threatened everything they were. They might lose their temple again. They might lose their land again. And they might be destroyed forever. These fears were legitimate. Following Jesus might cost the Jewish people everything. So the leaders decided to kill Jesus to get themselves out of this dilemma, to get themselves out of this pinch. And with, with this decision made, it's set in stone uh, by the highest judicial body in the land uh, that there was now a price on Jesus' head. It was not safe for Jesus to be in Jerusalem anymore. So Jesus traveled about 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem to the hill country to a town called Ephraim, where he would not be arrested, but he could be safe to continue on. And that's where our story is going to continue when we dive back into John next week. But before we move on there, I think we need to stop and go back to the first verse we saw this morning in verse 45. Because in verse 45, do you remember what we read? We read that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. Many of the Jews believed in him. The question, I I just, I'm, I'm just dying to know. Were they unaware of the risk? Were these Jews unaware of the risk of following Jesus Christ? Were they unaware that believing and following Jesus might be seen as treason by the Roman Empire? Were they aware that if Jesus was crushed, they would be crushed too? Were these Jews who believed in Jesus, did they not know the potential cost? And I think they did. They did. They most certainly did. But when these Jews looked at Jesus and saw his works, when they heard his words... They understood this, that if he truly was who they believed him to be, the risk was worth it. If he was truly the Messiah, the cost didn't matter. And this is the conclusion that the Jews who believed came to, that the risk of following Jesus Christ was worth it. Because what was to be gained by believing that was so much greater than what might be lost. And this is the conclusion that, that the Jews came to in this passage. And this is the conclusion that men and women throughout the centuries have come to as well. They've looked at Jesus Christ. And they have seen that what could be gained by following Jesus Christ is so much greater than what might be lost by following Jesus Christ. The cost of following Jesus Christ is great. We don't have to look far to find examples of that. I, I want to share five stories with you. Five stories from scripture and throughout history of examples of of people who have looked at Jesus Christ, counted the cost, and decided for themselves that what could be gained is so much better than what might be lost by following Jesus Christ. And the first example we have to look at is somebody we know well. His name is Paul. The Apostle Paul met Jesus Christ face to face on the road. And before that moment, he was raising up through the ranks of the Jewish hierarchy. He had honors, he had positions of power, he had authority. But when he reached the top of the ladder, he met Jesus face to face and he threw it all away. Because what he said in in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8 is that for for his sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish that I may gain Christ. He traded a life of honor. For a life of hardship. But for Paul, what was gained was so much greater than what he lost. For Paul, Jesus Christ was worth it. About 100 years after that, there was a man by the name of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was a disciple of John, the guy who wrote this book. And Polycarp lived in the Roman world when it was still illegal to follow Jesus Christ. And so the authorities arrested Polycarp because he was unwilling to burn incense to the emperor. He was unwilling to worship the emperor of Rome as a god. So they arrested him, they tied him to a stake, they put the wood around his ankles, and they gave him one last chance to recant. One last chance to worship the emperor as a god. And this is how he replies. He says, for 86 years I have served him. That is God. That is Jesus. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. In other words, you threaten me with death. You threaten me with death. But what is temporary death in the face of eternal life? When Polycarp looks at what was to be gained, it was so much greater than what might be lost. About 220 years after that, there was a man by the name of Athanasius. And Athanasius was the Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. And he was there defending the truth of Jesus Christ, fighting against a heresy that was saying that Jesus Christ was not fully God and fully man. And he fought this tooth and nail so hard, in fact, that he was exiled from Alexandria on five separate occasions. Cast out into the wilderness and unable to continue his work as bishop. But he fought through that persecution over and over and over five times until finally the truth of Jesus Christ's true deity was penned and written in stone and preserved throughout the generations. For Athanasius, what was to be gained was so much greater than what was to be lost. 1,300 years later, we're jumping a little bit. There's a man by the name of Martin Luther. You've probably heard of him. And Martin Luther was a monk and a a professor. And through his study of the books of John and Romans, mostly, he came to rediscover the true gospel of grace, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he started spreading that good news. He started spreading this rediscovered gospel. And as people heard it, they